Guys, Spine Up Seed Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, uh, I sit down with Carla Lolly Music, BA Food Director, and we talk the Feast of the Seven Fishes. This year, we did it. Uh, and Carla Lolly Music is our captain because apparently she does the actual feast every year with her family. So Carla and I talk about this classic Italian holiday meal. And then I sit down with BA Senior Food Editor Claire Saffitz uh, to discuss BA's best monkey bread, that buttery, cinnamon-y, pull-apart, sugary, delicious bread cake thingamajiggy. The recipe is online as well as in our December-January issue. All right, let's do this thing. Here is Carla and me. Carla, I feel like you've been waiting two and a half years to do this podcast. I've been waiting my whole life to do this podcast. (laughs) The mythical... Feast of the Seven Fishes. All of the fishes. All right. I will say this. Ever since I've worked in food media, which has Mm -hmm. been a long time off and on over the last 20 years, I keep hearing about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Yeah. Food media people pretty much get excited about feasts in general. So we have our Thanksgiving feast and Christmas feast and like an Easter feast. So like as many feasts as you can get in the mix, you know, the more better. Yeah, but I, f- I feel like the Feast of the Seven Fishes is one of those feasts that people talk about a lot. Yeah. But I've, n- I've never been invited to one, never Ex- been to one. I, I was- hear about it. I've never, it's like Bigfoot or something. So there's a mythical element to it. To me, there is at least, yeah. And it's like this great thing that like all these people, so you have FOMO. Basically, you have Feast of Seven Fishes FOMO. No, what I was telling Andy Barragani, one of our recipe developers the other day, who was working on our version, right, for yep. the website, I was like, well, if it was the Feast of the Seven Meats, <laughs> then I would have FOMO. I would be like, sign me up for that. So, by the way, we're, we're already assigned that feast for next year, by the way. Feast of the Seven Meats? Yeah. Oh, so you're going to invent a new feast. Yes. Or just the one that you want to go to. Okay. Yeah. All right. And, feast. And I, and I will... Isn't that a barbecue? <laughs> I guess, yeah. I guess you just go to a barbecue place in Texas and have the Feast of the Seven Meats. Um, That's really funny. Uh, so, yeah. So, let's talk about, before we get into... The menu that we created, a sort of accessible home-cooked version for the Bon Appetit uh, user, reader, yep. listener. Yeah, we enlisted a Persian from Berkeley yeah. to <laughs> execute the Italian feast. Good food is good food. Uh, but let's talk about all right, what the origins of the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Have you been to one? Let's talk about the, 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 ba- I, the backstory. Have I been to one? I, I literally don't know. So Feast of the Seven Fishes is Christmas Eve, held on Christmas Eve, and it is a raucous celebration as only... A uh, you know, it's supposed to be a fasting day, right? So, so no, I don't. You're talking to a Jewish guy here, so go all right, slow. Let's ba- back up. Yeah. So, Italians are are great for so many reasons, but one of the reasons Italians are great is because Friday night is supposed to be your fasting day when you show, um, you know, it's a, it's like a holy day where you honor the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes. But because it's Italian, you just don't eat meat on Friday. It okay. doesn't mean you don't so eat. You don't actually fast. <laughs> oh, first, so let's let's specify. We're talking about Italian Catholics here. It, correct. There are some Italian Jews. There are. I just did my Ancestry.com. I'm telling you, I got a little a little smidge. A suggestion? A suggestion of European <laughs> Jew. All right. I always knew it was there. Exactly. It, 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 yeah, it, it shines through. So, so right. Christmas yeah, so Eve. So typically, all right, so my mom is, she converted. We can go deep on this, but Polish Catholic, grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, but yeah, fish fries were every Friday night. Right. Uh, and and my, my, right. Cu- my in-laws in Buffalo, that's still a thing Friday there. night is, yeah. yeah. And fish so night. that- 
that's when you're fasting. You just you just quote have un- fish. Quote unquote fasting. So I guess Christmas Eve is one of the, you know, a very holy day and a fasting day. So you really just go huge on the fasting mm. and you have seven fish. It's an indulgent instead fast. Instead of just one. Yeah. yeah, because it's like we got we're, it's still Christmas. I yes. mean, come on. Um, and there is debate about why the number seven and some people do more and some people do less. So it's not necessarily that you need to have seven different fish or seven courses or some people do 12. There's a whole thing about 12 for the apostles and seven could be for the seven hills of Rome or it could be for the Mm. seven sacraments. So origins are disputed on that one. So again, it's, it's not the Feast of the Seven Courses. It's yeah, Could you have six fishes in one dish, theoretically? Absolutely. That we have one weird. course with three dishes of all the same fish, three different uh, ways. Okay, it's getting crazy. All right, so- But I think we do shoot for like uh, approximately seven fish. And with Andy's menu, I was like, let's just get seven, seven things from the marine life. And we use the f- term fish broadly. We can- Oh, yeah. Like, could be mussels, clams. Oh, Basically, yeah. Bivalves. Bivalves are involved. Crustaceans. Okay, Carla, I, I doubt- I'm going to say this right here. I, I don't think you've ever been to a Feast of the Seven Fishes. <laughs> so um, the Feast of Seven Fishes is the my favorite holiday in my family. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. Do you not know this? No. I just hear you talk about it. I oh, don't, my gosh. I, I don't believe my you. My mom has been hosting, my parents, but my mom does all the cooking, have been hosting Feast of Seven Fishes since I was a baby. I mean, I don't even remember not having Feast of Seven Fishes. We always had Feast of Seven Fishes. Are a bunch of friends coming oh, over? Is it family only? What's, so this, what's the, the deal? So this is the joke my dad likes to tell on Christmas Eve, which is that Christmas you have to spend with your family, but Christmas Eve you get to spend with your friends. Mm. So it's usually like 16, 18. There could be 20 people at the table. Um, we do five courses. It starts late. It goes late. We usually finish dinner at like three in the morning. My dad busts out the grappa. Yeah. My dad busts out the grappa at a certain point. It's like, if you see that grappa jar, you just know it's trouble. And then, yeah. It's like a a ball jar of just clear liquor. Yeah. With cherries in the bottom. And then he's like, who wants grappa? And if you say yes, like you're signing your own Mm. death sentence right there. It always sounds like a good idea when you're wasted, but, but that's at least, exactly when you're supposed to say no. no. But at least you didn't have a big dinner of like short ribs and mashed potatoes. You but, ate light. You ate seafood. Yeah, no, not at okay, all. Okay, so all right, so let all right, so your mom. I, and I'm she interest- has this down to a science, okay, right? All right, so I'm interested in Carol Lolly's approach before we get to our approach because a couple things. A, that's a lot of people coming over. It's a lot of different courses. Yeah. And it's a lot of wine. It's a lot of game planning and logisticizing. Like I've always been of the mind, like, oh, seafood, you got to cook it a la minute. It's got to be fresh. It's got to be, but you can't be there like a line cook preparing seven different courses. No, so what does we she basically do? were a line cook for two of the courses. Mm-hmm. So the way that it, and basically every course, you know, the the lolly women get up from the table. So okay. me and my sister and my mom are like, Rrr! it's like yeah. chairs scoot back, and we're like, we'll be back. <laughs> it's a little bit like Thanksgiving. It's a lot like yeah. Thanksgiving where you we ha- we have a menu that we really don't deviate from. Okay, takes, so what is your menu? It takes like 80 emails to make one alteration. So, mm-hmm. and you get really good at it. If you do it every year for 25 years, like you kind of go, okay. Hit me. So, we start with a seafood salad, which is not cooked a la minute. It's a cold seafood salad that my mom poaches all of the ingredients for I think the day before and then okay. marinates everything. So it's got jumbo shrimp and it's got scallops and it has um, squid. Nice. Does she do it with like the celery and yeah. that o- so olive celery, oil? celery, olive oil, a lot of parsley leaves, mm-hmm. um, some lemon juice. And so you poach that and then it's like- Sounds good. It's really good. And so, so she just keeps that chilled in the fridge. Yeah. 
Okay. So you can do that whole rigmarole a day and a half in advance. Okay. Um, chop some celery right before. I mean, parsley. So that's a cold course. Sit down, have that. So that can be sitting on the table. My dad always gives a toast. We call it a Frank's talk. That goes on for a while, but nothing's getting cold because it is cold. Yeah. Okay. So then next up is linguine with white clam sauce. So we do um, get ahead on that as well. How? Earlier, I'll tell you. Yeah. Earlier in the day, my mom takes out her you know, biggest Dutch oven, crushes a lot of garlic, olive oil, chili flake, um, and sautés that in olive oil till the garlic's just golden. She'll add the white wine, and then as the clams open... Oh, she's putting the clams in it then? Yeah, so she puts the clams in then. Huh. And okay. then they open, she takes them out, moves them to another bowl, and then um, it's somebody's job to take all of the clams out of the shells oh. and return them to this delicious clam yeah. cooking liquid, yep. which I wouldn't do it a day ahead because the clams might toughen up, but yeah. then they are just sitting in that, you Oil, know, their or, base yeah. and that- It's like they're confiting. Yeah, exactly. They just hang. So then when it's time to serve, all you got to do is boil the pasta water. And toss. But there's like 18 people. Yeah, so the amount, crazy. it's, you know, four pounds of pasta. So we've got to have like three different pasta We've pots. talked about this on other podcasts. The biggest challenge, I think, with pasta, and if you really want that, as I like to say, saucy, glossy quality to your pasta with that right mixture of sauce and butter and pasta water, it's, it's hard to do for a group. It's one thing if it's four people- but to do that for 18 is really challenging well, to get all those that ratio right. Because it, it never is exact. You can't just say, oh, use one cup and right. measure it. you got to f- do it by feel. But this is why it's really nice to have the clams um, separate. Yes. And, you know, you can take some of that liquid and dress the pasta. But then we kind of can ladle over, make sure everybody's getting the mm-hmm. right amount of clams in their thing. You know but that's I- why it takes three of us. Yeah. In the kitchen at the same time. What I also like about this, uh, which I think my mother always did really well, is that when you walk in the house, if you're a guest, the first thing you smell is that oil Mm -hmm. and garlic and clams and chilies because you've already done that. And you're like, oh, this is going to be a good dinner. Totally. Yeah. No no scented candles. No. None of that nonsense. You're you're smelling garlic and oil. All right. I'm legitimately hungry so far with the frutti de mare, (laughs) insalata, the uh, vongole. And you got your vongole. And then this is a pro tip if if you ever end up invited to either our house or somebody else's mm-hmm. house don't get seconds on the pasta okay we always offer oh it. yeah we'll be like would anybody like more and then my sister and i like have one eyebrow up and whoever says like oh yeah i'll have a little more that person's like you're di- you're doomed um okay so then the next course is very traditional you find this in a lot of Ita- uh, feast of seven fishes is the bacala course so bacala is the salted cod yes and this is the preserved cod that you know from olden times no refrigerators you gotta you got all that beautiful cod it's salted it's dried the french do it with their brandade the brandade the vikings did it way back in the day for sure sailing the world and that is the hardest part about bacala is that you need to soak it and rinse it for a few days in advance yeah it seems like a so whenever i come over the weekend before whatever there's like this giant metal bowl with like fish in the pantry and i'm like uh do i change the water so but it's not a big deal you're just changing it seems the water. like a big deal it's, it's just like a... but you have so much other stuff going on you have life going on you got all these you have emails and you've got to be changing the water on dry it's like not the 16th century do we really need to be doing this i think it's delicious and so i how, love how does she how does how does carol pre- prepare it so three different ways mm. so one of the what? ways yeah oh so this is the course there's bacala three ways so we're like <laughs> knocking out a lot of fish at once here um but she's not a She's not a dummy, so only one of the ways actually requires, like, a la minute cooking. Mm-hmm. 
So you've got another cold salad that has uh, cracked fresh green olives, chunks of bacala, cherry tomatoes, a lot of parsley, olive oil. Okay. Butterbing. Yep. Done. Then the other course is sort of the Italian version of, of brandade. So you simmer the, the bacala in milk and garlic and then mash it with like a ton of olive oil. And that's sort of like a spread. But no potatoes. No, it's called no. mantecato. Oh, yeah. um, okay. No potatoes. Okay. No potatoes? I don't think there's potatoes. Okay. Maybe there's potatoes. That's Carol. Okay, Carol. Um, and then the third way is... Um, what is her name? Ada Buoni, I think, is the name of the cookbook. Um, and it they're battered and fried. So you make this like... That's crazy. For 18 people, that's insane. I know. That is insane. But it's special. But what, what makes your mother think that people want this much bacala in the first place? <laughs> Why, she could easily cut one of these courses and no one would know or complain. That is so... If you cut one of those courses, there would be... Literally, people would be like protesting outside the building. I don't think so. Anyway, my, so and number one would be my sister. So what is she... She's frying them in Me what, in what and vessels? and my mom. And what? she has a really, really big cast iron skillet and you oh fry them God. in olive oil. So it's like the chunks no, of bacala, yeah, yeah. a little light batter, yeah. and then you fold egg whites into it and oh they're really God. light. So that's... that. Does we she pass. do any like capers or anything with them or just... No, just we just little... pass that around and you squeeze lemon juice oh, over it. Juice. So then okay. you've got your bacala three different ways on your yeah. plate. It's really fantastic. Might be my favorite course because we have linguine with clams like all the time. All right. So, so far we've had the frutta de mare, mm-hmm. the vongole, bacala three ways. Correct. So we're up to five different plates and everything so yeah, far. Yeah, and then there's like three different seafood in the seafood salad. So yeah. we've actually got five, we're on, you know, five or six fish here. And then the last course is, um, it's always been a roasted salmon. It was a roasted salmon for oh, wait, really- Wait, 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 hold on. First of all. <laughs> I, I, Why is I, that? that? That's a- not the that's, consternation. Uh, it's just like, it, all of a sudden we went from like, I feel like I'm in Sicily or something to Italy. Now I feel like I'm hanging out with the Silver Palette cookbook in New York in 1986. I think the Where recipe, did the roasted salmon come from? I'm pretty sure that it's a Giuliano Bugiali recipe. And mm. it, and the reason- For, where, when for it gets, Americans. When it gets Italian again is that it was, we don't we stopped doing this a few years ago. I kind of like lobbied for a change. It took a while. Um, but- fresh artichokes that my dad so my dad is the same guy who has to take all the brussels sprout mm-hmm. leaves off yep. so for um the salmon he is given a large pile of artichokes and he has to trim all of them get all the leaves off and get them down to you know i don't know what's that a quarter of an inch yep. um slivers of just the heart wow. and then you par you par cook those a little but not all the way through fill the cavity of the salmon and then roast it with with like lemon stuffed in there and a the, whole roasted salmon not a just whole like a roasted side. Salmon. interesting yeah so that's going kind of low yeah. and slow while you're eating these other courses so at like a certain point she just knows like do you do one big one for 18 people yeah a big well. fish now we do the slow po- the the oil slow roasted salmon with the fennel and the citrus and the chilies okay, from so- the magazine and it's really easy, and it's not, really beautiful. Not that I'm a, a Italian American, but I'm going to speak for the Italian Americans. Oh, out please there. do. <laughs> we just <laughs> we just did this feast of however many fishes, and there's no red sauce anywhere. No red sauce anywhere. I don't. I. Uh, 
I know a lot of people do like lobster fra diavolo yeah. or, or a fra diavolo pasta. So we put yeah, that red. Yeah, we get one with like the mussels and stuff, or mussels so, or mussels in red sauce. Yep. You get that. Yeah. Well, I've funny. had mussels fra diavolo before. That's a great segue because in the menu, you do, you may not get to speak for all of the Italian Americans, mm. but you do have an influence over um, the recipes in Bon Appetit. And good old Andy Baragani, one of his courses. Did you know that the name Rappaport comes from Italy? Rapa di Porto, the rabbi of Porto, dates back to the fifteen mid fifteen hundreds. So you are an Italian Jew. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean you couldn't. Yeah, I mean basically. Okay, so let's. <laughs> all right, so that is the that actually, that sounds delicious. And then we have Carol's, dessert. Yeah. And usually by the salmon course, you've got some people groaning. Yes. And it's like, suck it up. Deal You're here it. for a reason. And then what's dessert? Like some olive oil cake or something? Or do you um, do some... So sh- there's an amazing um, cheesecake that has wheat berries in it. It's a ricotta cheesecake that's filled with <sighs> See, wheat berries. I don't need a cheesecake after a meal that big. Nobody needs anything yes. after a meal that big. Uh, but we have it anyway. It's, I really look forward to that dish. And the other thing is a walnut tart covered Ooh. in like a bittersweet chocolate. I see. That sounds good. You don't need that either. All and right. you don't need grappa. But we have it anyway. Okay, so let's talk about Andy's Feast of the Seven Fishes. And when you guys sort of orchestrated this menu for the one on bonappetit.com, what was the mission here? We were really thinking not about the person who has had Feast of Seven Fishes and hosted it for 25 years because that person knows what their menu is and is probably pretty happy with it. So we we get a lot of requests from our readers because they want to do it. They haven't done it. It sounds so fun. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, literally. Literally. Who knew? Not Who, me. They, I knew. They didn't They didn't have my That's, email. Why do you think we've been pitching the story for <laughs> three years? So we wanted to do a story that someone who wanted to pull this off would, would have great, like, great success. And one of the strategies that Annie and I talked about was how can we get some of the fishes pushed into an appetizer or like a hors d'oeuvre hour mm. so that when you're sitting down, because most people don't want to do multi-courses sitting at the table this is like a really long dinner so we kind of set it up so that you're knocking a couple fish out of the way with your pre-dinner and then once you sit down you're really just it's it's just not that hard and then also staggering between a course where you need to do a little bit of all minute stuff to a course where which is really hands-off so that while you're doing the all minute thing you've got something going that is inactive Inactive. and so that was the that was a strategy i think it I think we succeeded, but so in, yeah. So cocktail hour, you're having maybe some some aperol spritzes or something. Yeah, aperol spritz would be great. You know, white wine, some yeah. prosecco. Sure, and you're great. eating. And so I see clam dip with kettle chips. I like that. Yeah, clam dip and kettle chips. And the the great thing about this is that unlike you know Carolali, you don't mm-hmm. have to steam open your clams and pluck them from their shells. And this is like canned clams. Yeah, this is old school. So you have the chopped up canned clams. You have sour cream, cream cheese, Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco, chives, creamy. You got the chips. And then mm. classic Andy fashion. It's covered with quite a bit of chopped chives. Yeah. So beautiful and green. And then kettle chips are just the best. Yeah. You want to, you know, you could have some crudite out with that too. But like, I love that sturdy kettle chip in the in the clam dip. And the other appetizer are um, little anchovy toasts. Forget about if you like anchovies or not. But you can kind of pre-toast your toast in the oven. You make a spicy butter with Calabrian chilies and butter. Oh, I saw the butter. The butter looks great. It's like bright orange. The butter looks very nice in the test It's really cool. And then you just lay, you know, a fish over, 
squeeze a lemon, parsley. So if you wanted to just have- So does the butter sort of melt a little on a the little toast? A little bit, yeah. yeah. And then you lay the anchovies. It also calls for sardines yeah. here. Which, you could yeah. have one, the other, both. Parsley, lemon, sea salt, and just put those out as little snackables. Yeah. Okay, so that's your cocktail hour. Do you like any canned fishes? I like the cans. <laughs> the, the, the designs and everything on them and the little thing you lift up you and could, peel away. You like that part? Yeah. You could do this with mussels, I guess. A little, like, mussel on toast. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah, that'd be good. All right, I like that. Okay, mm-hmm. then we go into the... Then we're sitting down to dinner, Now right? you sit down at dinner. Okay. Uh, and the first thing we do at dinner is we have pasta. Yes. The, so, pre- the preemie. The preemie. But yes. the nice thing, so this is a spice... It's essentially... A spicy tomato sauce that has mussels and shrimp that are cooked in the tomato sauce. But as far as like getting head on it, you can make your marinara earlier in the day. It's just sitting there. Then you you have your water boiling while people are snacking on appetizers. And in well, the that's time, nice, yeah. So the, the, the first yeah. one is possible, so you're not getting up from the table to exactly. deal with that. Shrimp cooks, like, in no time. You, right. You so just you put can, it in the sauce. In the amount of time that it would take for the pasta to cook, you can finish the sauce, yeah. which is just dumping mussels. We went with mussels instead of clams because they very reliably open in, like, two minutes. So you're throwing the mussels in the shell, let them open. You throw the shrimp in there in a couple of minutes. They're done. Boom. Yeah. And then serve it. And it really does transform the sauce because the liquor from the mussels and that shrimp like flavor infuses yeah. the sauce. And it's like super fast. It's got a couple of fishes in it and it's easy. Um, and we we call for putting this out with some toast for, you know, sopping up the juices. Seafood spaghetti with mussels and shrimp. Right. So while that is going, in the oven, you already have your swordfish. You pre-cook some potatoes. They start. They go in first. Then you add big swordfish steaks, and it gets garnished with a really bright green, really pretty olive, pistachio, olive oil, herb. It's not like super pureed. It has like a lot of nice, it's like a coarse pesto, a lot of texture there. It looks really pretty. We all love swordfish. Oh, you know what? You forgot, you forgot a, a course. Did I? Yeah, I think squid salad with oh, chickpeas and right. celery. Oh, my God. That is the first course, and that's a cold salad. That's what you start with. So that's like pre- This is, but it, this oh, is a little- yeah. out of order. It's a, yeah. li- it's a little bit more room It's temp. a simplified version of what I described. So you cook. It's only got squid. It's one, fi- one, one fish, one cephalopod. Hmm. You buy it in the rings and the tentacles separated. You cook it really, really fast over high heat. Can I say that in terms of squid? We talk a, a lot about squid at this magazine yeah. in terms of <laughs> buyability, cookability, and how much does the average home cook use it or not. And in terms of buying squid, because if you're going to the, the fresh seafood market and you buy whole squid, you're then cleaning it yourself and pulling out that weird plastic thing. And it's a little bit, you have to go into YouTube to figure out what the heck you're doing. Yep. But you can buy it already cleaned totally. and whatnot. You tentacles know. usually sold sometimes they're mixed in with mm. the bodies so worst case scenario you're going to get squid squid tentacles and bodies but the bodies haven't been cut into rings but that's that's like easy if you can cut yeah. a sausage into yeah. coins you can, you can cut a squid into rings yeah. um but especially around christmas eve like this is one of those seasonal items like because everyone's doing feast of the seven fishes everyone but yeah. you <laughs> i guess um so that is dressed with olive oil again there's a lot of olive oil and lemon you yeah. know uh, chickpeas, celery, red onion. So that I love that too. Same flavor profile. Same. So this isn't chilled. It's more room temp. You sort of char the squid and then toss and them toss in it with yeah. all that stuff, and then that's just hanging out. I'm a big fan of the room temperature 
dish in general, whether yeah. it's a side or something like or this. Or a roast chicken. Well, that's a whole other podcast, which we've done. Look it up. <laughs> but the notion you can do it ahead and just let it leave it on the counter, and it's still going to be warm and fragrant and delicious. Totally. And you want to get, you know, a couple of these dishes are finished with olive oil, so... Go pick up a, a nice bottle of 375 milliliter, like some nice finishing oil that will transform like every single dish you put on the well, table. Well, exactly. We've talked about this before. Yeah. You should always have, I want to say you should always, but it's nice to have two different olive oils. Your big jug of the cooking olive oil that you're maybe you're making with the pasta or you're frying up your bacala in, and then you've got that nice fancy bottle that you kind of do the drizzle yeah. at the very end that adds a nice brightness and freshness yeah. to nice a dish. grassy. Yeah, grassy, if you will. So I think this is totally doable. Okay. Also in a smaller kitchen with like less equipment. Andy is, today is Tuesday. So a couple of days from now, Andy will be uh, filming a hosted video where he makes the seafood spicy marinara oh, cool. pasta. Awesome. All right. So you'll be able to find that and you'll be able to see young Baragani cook it and show you how to do it right there. I'm looking forward to that, but I'm even more Looking forward to going to Carol Lolly's house and Frank's house for Feast of the Seven Fishes. What, ta- what time are we talking? Exactly? We usually gather at eight. Okay. And cool. we open presents at like two in the morning. Okay. I'll bring a present <laughs> for your mom, the, the cook. Uh, thank you, Carla. It was a pleasure. I just like saying monkey bread. Have you ever made it? Funny that you ask, Claire. <laughs> this is weird because I, I have made it, although I don't really remember making it. Although I know when I was a toddler going to Montessori school at this church on the corner of Jennifer Street in Connecticut in Washington, D.C., we made monkey bread. We made monkey bread, we churned our own butter, and we learned to sweep and mop the floor. (laughs) We had a thing in elementary school called Prairie Day because I grew up in St. Louis where it was like churn the butter <laughs> make the corn cakes or whatever did you did you like wash clothes on the on the washing board I don't think they made us that would just be like manual labor for yeah. small children but well so, that's that's what that's what you did back, <laughs> in, back in the Prairie Days right but did, when you made it do you remember if you popped a can like did you make it from scratch because mm. monkey bread as I understand it not being something that I grew up really making is very often made from like the biscuit dough out of a can. I will say this. Knowing a little but not much about Montessori school, I'm going <laughs> to assume that we didn't do it from a can. The fact that we churned our own butter, mopped our own floors, I think we made it by scratch. Yeah, it would be weird to put like homemade churned butter on Pillsbury biscuit yeah, dough. But, but it would be pretty good though. I'm sure it would taste <laughs> great. Um, right. So our version, the mandate for us was make a great monkey bread, which is a really great holiday dessert because it's very shareable and you can make it ahead. Well, what the hell is it? I think everyone knows like, oh yeah, monkey bread. Sure. <laughs> monkey bread. I love monkey. Wait, what is monkey bread? I put monkey bread into the category of pull apart yeast bready things. So like <laughs> yeast, <bready laughs> that's things. a real baking category. It's essentially little balls of like a yeasted dough covered in butter and then cinnamon sugar and baked in some kind of pan. Like, so in our case, we did a two pan. You can do a bunt pan, um, and then it comes out. You turn it out of the mold, and then everyone kind of attacks it and like pulls it apart. Hence, mm. pull apart bread. And there might be a little caramel glaze involved. Yeah. Well, a lot of recipes you put sort of like a caramel mixture and nuts on the bottom. Oh. So you turn it over, yeah. and it kind of coats everything. Mm. But I think in testing it, I had I had made it at home before I developed this recipe, and I felt like when you did that, there's a lot of liquid then at the bottom, and usually it's like corn syrup and brown sugar and butter. It kind of affects the way it bakes. Like There's so much steam then happening in the pan as it bakes that it doesn't really bake all the way through, and you get some gumminess in the like center pieces. So we took this that kind of caramel layer out, and then we just served caramel sauce on the side, which I think is, improves it a lot. Okay, since it's been about 43 years since I've made this, um, <laughs> Can we let's, can we start at the beginning and can you walk me and the listeners through how to make 
authentic monkey brain. Right. Well, right. Okay. So this does not involve popping open a can, but if that's what you want to do, then fine. No, 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 no. I want to make the real thing. Okay. So for this recipe, we are using a brioche dough. Brioche is just like- Sounds fancy. It does sound fancy. I think it makes it sound intimidating. It's not really that hard to make. If you've ever made cinnamon rolls or like any kind of yeast dough, it's really just one extra step. So that starts with, so it uses yeast, active dry yeast, and you have- Is just, that like a packet that you rip open? Yes. Yeah, so all, we try to make all of our recipes use one quarter ounce packet of yeast just because it's more convenient. Um, so that ends up being, if you have like a larger container, it's about two and a quarter teaspoons. Ooh, I have another question. Uh-huh. I, and sometimes I don't do a lot of baking. I like to eat baking things. I feel like sometimes when you look for yeast, it's in the refrigerated section, and sometimes it's not. Is it always in the refrigerated section? Sometimes it's refrigerated by the dairy. Sometimes it's in the baking aisle. Regardless, when you get home, you should refrigerate it. It lasts for a long time. So active dry yeast, there's many different kinds of yeast. All of our recipes call for active dry because it's the most easy to find. Um, But basically, it's these little granules that are covered in like a dehydrated coating. And so... The, the yeast is a, a live product, but you have to dissolve that coating to activate it. Oh. And it, it just stays fresher longer if you keep it in the fridge. Okay. And they always have like an ex- expiration date on the packet, so you'll right. know. So I bought my yeast packet. I come home. Now what am I doing? Right. So this just uses um, regular all-purpose flour. There's a little bit of sugar in the dough to make it a tiny bit sweet, but really this recipe has a lot of sugar that comes in how you build it and assemble it. We kept most of the sweetness out of the dough itself. Teaspoon of kosher salt, I see. Yes, I always put a lot of salt in any any baked good. Um, I, I've had your baked goods. <laughs> yes, I had them as sampled. Uh, and then eggs, and then at the end, a lot of butter. So brioche is basically you take like an enriched yeast dough, enriched because it has eggs in it. Oh, wait, wait, you're jumping ahead. So I open the yeast pack and I pour it in water. What do I do? I don't, okay, I don't, right. I've never Sorry. made this before. Right, let me, I'm really going to start at the beginning. You act as if like everyone knows how to make brioche. <laughs> no, definitely not. I had to f- re-familiarize myself with it. It had been a while. So the first thing you want to do is proof the yeast, which basically means you want to make sure that the yeast is still alive. Mm-hmm. So the yeast is what produces gas as the dough sits and that gas raises the dough. So there's no other chemical leavener. There isn't baking powder or baking soda. So you do that. So in this case, you do milk because we're adding sort of riches to the dough. Mm-hmm. If you were just making bread, you would use water. Um, but there's enough water content in milk that you can, it'll dissolve the coating around the yeast and, and you'll be able to see lots of like bubbly action. So you heat up the milk a little bit. You don't want to go above 120 degrees, but if you like stick your finger in it, it'll kind of be like warm tap water yeah. temperature. So you let the yeast sit in the warm milk, and you'll notice within five minutes, if your yeast is alive, like lots of little bubbles that are activating. I mean, what to me doesn't makes this not that difficult is then you basically mix every other ingredient together except for the butter. So in goes your flour, your eggs, your um, a little bit of sugar and the salt. And this works best in a stand mixer with a dough hook. You mm. could, I have made it by hand. It will just take a little bit longer. Are you using your hands to mix it, or what are you using to mix it up? Then? Just everything in the in the mixer with the hook. So oh, you say, I'm saying say you don't have a Oh, mixer. yeah, put it in a bowl and use a wooden spoon. Okay. And then as soon as it becomes, as soon as it kind of comes together in one mass, you can switch to your hands and start and to knead it. And you take the, the, the eggs and the flours and the salt sugar and the yeast and you pour it in there and yeah. just mix it all, all together. together. Yep, all at once. And then say you're using a mixer, when do you stop? Just when it comes together? No, so you want to keep going. The So brioche is still, I could put it into the category of like a bread. So I think when... What makes a good brioche is that when you tear a piece off, you get these like little threads that kind of pull mm. apart. So that means that there's you still want a lot of gluten development. So that means you want to work the dough 
for several minutes. Which is opposite of like a biscuit where you do just till like the, the dough forms and you stop. Right, right. That's for more of like a, a tender flaky product. Yeah. So in this case, it's it's bread. You want that sort of stretchiness, that elasticity in the dough. So I think in the recipe we say to put it in the mixer after the dough comes together for five minutes. But more important is the indicator, which is that it's no longer sticking to the sides of the bowl and that it's really smooth and elastic. So you'll have this beautiful, smooth um, ball of dough that's very stretchy, um, and but we haven't added the butter yet. So that's the important step. And actually, I forgot what's the very first step in this recipe before you proof the dough is you take two sticks of butter, you cut it up into pieces, and you put it in the mixer. You, again, you could do this by hand if you wanted to. And you beat it with a paddle until the butter kind of smooths out and it's no longer in its individual pieces and it's pliable but still cold. Hmm. And that's because you're going to add it to the dough at the stage where we are now where it's already been mixed and everything, but you haven't added the butter. So brioche follows this. So you're this. then adding the butter back into the mixer with the dough that's already in yeah. dough form and, yeah. that, and that'll incorporate on its own? Well, you do a little bit at a time, about okay. a tablespoon at a time. And this process takes a long time. I was about to say. You want the dough to slowly absorb the butter. I would say that's 16 tablespoons in two sticks, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. But the important thing is that the dough is slowly absorbing the butter. So it's not like it doesn't look greasy. The butter is pliable, but still a little bit cold. At that point, it's a little closer to room temperature. Yeah. But um, you don't want the dough, you don't want the butter too soft because um, then the dough becomes hard to work with. Uh, and it also, because temperature, you have yeast involved, temperature is important. And you don't want the dough to get like super hot or super cold because, you know, th- then that affects the speed at which the, the yeast kind of like raises the dough. All right. So you have this incorporated dough, butter, eggs, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of dough. It's very, it's so smooth and it's like, it's so much fun to work with and the, the tactile sensation is you're really ver- satisfying. You're very proud of yourself at this point. You're yes. like, I just made dough. Right. Do you, do you let it rest? Do you go for it at this point? What's yeah. The so with, with yeast doughs that use active dry yeast, you go through two what's called proofing. So you let it rise twice. The first is the bulk phase. So you just have this, this huge mass of dough. It's not that big. Um, you put it in a grease bowl and you cover it and you let it rise all together in like a room temperature kitchen or even a slightly warm spot. It'll take about an hour. Um, and then you punch it down. You know who likes to do that? Kids. Kids, Kids right? love <laughs> to punch it down. This is a fun... <laughs> <laughs> this is a fun baking activity with kids. I say that really not having any children around me ever and having never baked with kids, but I would imagine <laughs> <laughs> that it's fun. Um, you might want to re- reconsider that thought. Yeah, there's a lot of cinnamon sugar flying yeah. around, I would guess, in yeah. this recipe. Um, and you know who's not cleaning up? The kids. They're not doing the cleanup. <laughs> no, right. Okay, so at that point, it's it's um, the dough has risen once, and then you punch it down. And this is where the re- our recipe... I think is really helpful strategy for the home cook. So monkey bread, like you have to form all these individual balls and dip them in butter and then in cinnamon sugar and they go back into the cake, the pan, so we use a two pan and they have to rise again. The problem that I was having when I first tested the recipe was if you do, if you pinch off a piece of dough one by one from the larger mass um, and you start putting them, you roll them and put them into the pan, the ones you put in the pan first start to rise a lot faster than the oh. ones that toward the end. Yeah. So to avoid that, we did a method where you press the punch down dough into like a 13 by 9 pan. A quarter sheet tray works to anything kind of wide and flat. And then you cut it into a grid 
with like a pizza cutter or a knife. So you oh, chill cool. it. So it looks like it looks like a checkerboard at yeah. this point. Yeah. So you press it down. You you want to really kind of knock the air out of it, and you press it into an even layer into this pan or tray that you've lined with plastic, and then you chill it because of all the butter that's in brioche. As it warms up, it gets really really soft and kind of hard to work with because that butter yeah. softens. Um, but if you chill it, the butter hardens and it becomes very easy to work with, and that also kind of slows down the yeast a little bit, so you have some time to work with it. And so in the recipe, there's kind of a process where you butter, you have melted butter, and you brush the top of the dough with the butter. You sprinkle it with cinnamon, cinnamon sugar. You tap off the excess, and then you invert it on your counter so it's still in the pan. You invert it, take the pan off, take the plastic off. The first time I did this, I didn't tap off the excess sugar, and I flipped the thing over and like got cinnamon sugar all over <laughs> like myself in the counter. So don't ignore that step. Then you cut it, brush you know more butter, sugar on the other side. So, on the other so side. you have butter and sugar on both sides essentially. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cut it again, and then you start pulling off the bits. Yep, and then you all you're doing is rolling between your palms and putting into the into the mold. So you you choose to use like a bunt pan. Yes. And you just pile them on top of each other? Yeah. I mean, at first I was kind of trying to arrange them artfully so that you got this kind of like, you got what felt like rows or um, like they were stacked. Yeah. But they kind of just, when they rise, they They're all kind gonna of- They're just going to do their thing. Oh, wait. Can we, can, we, can we take a time out? Yeah. You might be list- wondering, listener, why is it called monkey bread? And we have a little sidebar in the December issue, which this recipe is featured in. Uh some of these are a little dubious, but I'm going to read them anyways. Well, who, who, the, the deck is no one knows for sure. Yeah, so. no one knows for sure, <laughs> but these are the most plausible theories. And some of these, I wonder how plausible they are. All right, number one, it's the term stage. <laughs> you know, this is from back in the day when they call somebody stage and screen star. Zazu Pitts. It's a stage. It's the term stage and screen star Zazu Pitts coined in the 1940s for her snackable loaf that the neighborhood kids, a.k.a. little monkeys, couldn't resist. What do you think about that one? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to say. I mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you who Zazu Pitts is. <laughs> That's quite the name. Um, we call it Zazu bread. Uh, two. It refers to the way you eat the bread, like a monkey picking at the stuff with its fingers. I don't know. That's, That's a little like, gross. Yeah. That's like eh. number three. This one is like uh, this is just complete nonsense. Um, it, the bread resembles the bark on the monkey puzzle tree, a Chilean evergreen. This feels like if you were playing the game like two truths and a lie. Like which of these? Yeah, is the, oh, exactly. Is the false yeah. one. Yeah, I would like, pick that one. Maybe it does resemble the bark, but I'm not buying it. Number four, final entry. When assembling the loaf, oh, this one is just complete nonsense. When you when, when assembling the loaf, you have to quote unquote monkey around with the dough cutting it and rolling it into balls i'm going with number one i'm going with zazu <laughs> yeah, sure okay I'll, I'll back you up <laughs> or none of the above <laughs> right so anyways you got these these little beautiful buttery cinnamon sugary little golf ball size things piled up into a, a bunt pan uh-huh you just throw it in the oven? So then you have to let it rise the second Again. time. Again? Yeah. Also, one thing I realized while making this is you have to make the little pieces of dough a lot smaller than you would think when you're rolling them. Because they expand so much, it's like you think that they're going to be really bite-sized. So we tell you to cut the dough into a pretty – it's a pretty big grid yeah. where you're cutting a lot of pieces. So that also slows you down a little bit in the rolling, and that's where you can bring in someone to help you, and you can kind of both sit there so and roll them. once they're in the bunt pan, how long are you letting them rise for, and how do you know when – they're risen fully. Yeah, the second rise is slightly faster. It's like f- around 45, 45 minutes to an hour. And so on the second rise for all baked goods, whether it's cinnamon rolls or monkey bread, I usually poke 
the like a piece of the dough mm-hmm. and I look for the dough to spring back most of the way but to leave a slight indentation so that's an indication mm. that there's like enough sort of gas generated by the yeast but on the second rise you want to so not quite doubled in size is what you're looking okay. for you want to give it a little like extra room to c- continue to expand in the oven all right it's been 52 minutes can I put it in the oven already yeah unfortunately it only takes like 20 minutes to bake so. okay so that's good so I put it in the oven uh-huh. comes out the house smells amazing it really kids are freaking out yeah the, the little s- monkeys are running around <laughs> right <laughs> with with their hands the um the smell of this baking is one of the best smells I think I've ever really encountered in you, all of my baking and you've done a lot of baking yeah it's just the smell I mean it's kind of like when you were a kid and you went to the mall and like the Auntie Anne's Oh god! Like yeah. pretzel thing was making like the cinnamon pretzels. Yeah. It's just like the smell of butter and cinnamon sugar is so good. But apparently, it's not good enough that we still gotta slick it with some some caramel sauce. Right, totally. So we have a separate recipe in the same issue mm-hmm. for all-purpose caramel sauce. Yeah, I mean, you could serve this with a jarred caramel sauce that you like well, at home. Okay. But um, so you you turn out the loaf from the bunt pan and then flip it back over so the top side is facing up? So in this recipe, so you butter the two pan and then you dust it with sugar. We use sanding sugar because it gives extra crunch and it makes oh, like a very yeah. sparkly and finish. It stays in its granular form. And yeah, get, uh, and it yeah. makes it really sparkly. And you so can get that. Can, can you get sanding sugar at like the grocery store? Some grocery stores. Bob's Red Mill makes it, actually. Uh-huh. Um, but any, if you got any baking type store would have it. Yes, exactly. Um, even like a Williams-Sonoma or mm-hmm. Sur La Table, like a cooking yeah. store will have it um, near the chocolate. So when this comes out, you let it rest a little bit, but you don't want that sugar to harden all the way because it's going to be really hard to unmold. And I recommend using a nonstick pan just because sure. it makes it easier um so you can you can choose to invert it and serve it upside down so you have all, like sharper edges and in a bunt pan that's that's the way you kind of have to do it in a tube pan oh, you yeah. could so tube all right so a bunt pan usually has like the re- a design yes a tube pan is more just smooth yes it's like those it has those sort of right angles yeah the flat top yeah so when i was making it i kind of served it both ways like i like the look the clean look of the inverted tube so you have those sharp edges and you can see the outline of all the pieces but i think the way that we showed it in the magazine the sort of like right side up with the you know all the little domes is really pretty too so it's up to you and that was done in a tube pan not a design bunt pan correct right and we use a tube or a bunt because you get that tube in the middle like that because both of them have that sort of center piece that conducts heat from the inside out and so you get just more even baking and you get more kind of browning so sometimes like like on a regular pan like oh the edges are done but the inside isn't here everything cooks more evenly yeah you don't get those doughy pieces in the very middle that to feel like they're a little underdone fascinating it's like it's like you've done this before right it's like we think about these things (laughs) when, when we do them wow i really i think can we make one of these for the for the holidays coming up yeah, well, our yeah. holiday party is tonight, so tonight. I might not be able to bring it to that, but sure. But before we break for break, let's let's make one of these. Uh, and you can find this recipe on bonappetit.com, BA's best monkey bread. You can also find the accompanying caramel sauce. What is the caramel sauce recipe called, Claire? Do you know? So that's on the Basically page. I think yeah. it's called, what do we mm, call it? Well, we call it Awesome Sauce is the headline. But we talked about this in a different podcast, but it's basically, hey, yeah, I think it's just caramel sauce. So look for that on the, on the website as well, uh, both on bonappetit.com. All right. Happy holidays. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wartsman. 
We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.